The Tale of Two Cities. This is number two of seven, and it has to do with the warfare <coughs> between Babylon and Jerusalem. I always like to begin a sermon of this kind with a scripture. Turn to Genesis 3:15. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now throughout the Christian church, this prophetic language is understood as a prediction of the coming of a deliverer, the Messiah. But this prophecy is also literally true in that it predicts that there will be an actual war between Christ and Satan and between their subjects, and that victory will finally be achieved on the side of Christ. Permit me to read this text once more and illustrate it so that we might clearly understand it. <clears throat> I, speaking of the Almighty God, will put enmity, that's hostility and war, between thee, Satan and his followers, and the woman, Christ's church, which is composed of his believers, and between thy seed, the descendants of Satanism, and her seed, the remnant believers of Christ. It shall bruise thy head, a prophecy of Satan's final destruction in eternal death, and thou shalt bruise his heel, the infliction of wounds, but not threatening eternal life. Now it's a interest of note that all the participants of either side in this war have been described in Scripture as symbolically living in two cities, either Jerusalem or Babylon. And they will continue to exist in one of these two cities until, and now I'm quoting Bible commentary, 1142 till the closing of the last great chapter in this world's history unquote. through the ages enmity and strife war and controversy have always existed between these enemies babylon has trampled jerusalem underfoot time and time again and carried her inhabitants into captivity. Likewise, Jerusalem has appeared to gain the victory over Babylon, but neither side has ever succeeded to banish the other up until the present moment. 
One thing is certain. The warfare will grow in intensity until God declares it is done. Babylon has always considered herself, and I'm quoting, the gate of the gods, unquote, which actually urge her people to persecute the inhabitants of Jerusalem in a literal conflict of actual war. And modern Babylon continues the same tactics. Ellen White put this in words we clearly can understand. Great Controversy, page 507. Whosoever sees the repulsive character of sin and in strength from above resists temptation will assuredly arouse the wrath of Satan and his subjects. And so we can see that this battle led by Satan and his angels involves also human armies that are within the city of Babylon. Let me quote <coughs> about four statements describing this conflict. The first is found in Bible Commentary 1141, number four. The satanic agencies are constantly at work, sowing the waters, sowing and watering the seeds of rebellion against the law of God. And Satan is gathering souls under his black banner of revolt. Great Controversy 507. Satan's agents are constantly working under his direction to establish his authority and build up his kingdom in opposition to the government of God. Back to Bible Commentary 4, 1141. Satan forms a confederacy with human beings to contend against purity and holiness. Great Controversy 505. Fallen angels and wicked men unite in desperate companionship. Unquote. Now that's quite a picture. The devil and his angels working with wicked men who are within Babylon to fight against God's remnant. But we must never forget that the inhabitants of Jerusalem are also aided by unseen armies of heavenly angels. And for that, we should praise God and we should take courage. Though the battle fought is real, a real struggle. In Patriarchs and Prophets, page 37, Speaking of Satan, we read, Why? Questioned this mighty angel. Should Christ have the supremacy? Why is he honored above Lucifer? 
so does the great controversy between Christ and Satan continue day after day and involves every person born in this world. Each must choose in which city they will live and from which city they will fight and who will be their commander. But why? Why are we forced to choose between these two powerful forces? In search of the answer, we are taken back to where it all began. For it started in heaven, when Lucifer, the greatest of all created angels, determined that he should be God. The Bible is clear about this, Isaiah 14, 13. Speaking of Lucifer, for thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north, I will be like the Most High. Now, of course, at first, these were only his thoughts. But soon Satan resolved to take God's throne by force and to sit upon it. In the book Patriarchs and Prophets, we are told exactly how this started and how the warfare began in heaven. Satan began to insinuate doubts concerning the laws that governed heavenly beings, intimating that the angels needed no such restraint, for their own wisdom was a sufficient guide. It was no more possible for them than for God himself to err. In Great Controversy 502, we read that Satan had claimed that the transgression of God's law would bring liberty and exaltation. So, in Patriarchs and Prophets 41, we find the only course remaining for him and his followers was to assert their liberty and gain by force the rights which had not been willingly accorded them. Thus it was that Satan forced the angels to choose their allegiance, either to Christ or to himself. And when this conflict matured, more than one-third of heaven's angels believed Lucifer's deceptions, and they joined with Lucifer in open revolt. This is spoken of in Revelations, the 12th chapter, verse 7 to 9. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. 
Thus we are told in Patriarchs and Prophets 41, God permitted Satan to carry forward his work until the spirit of dissatisfaction ripened into active revolt. In the book Story of Redemption, page 18, are these words. All the heavenly host were summoned to appear before the Father to have each case determined. Satan unblushingly made known his dissatisfaction. And then these words. Then there was war in heaven. Satan and his sympathizers were expelled from heaven. In Selected Messages 1, 222, Satan had warred for the mastery in heaven and had lost the battle. Now, I'm sure that every one of us have some time or the other have asked the question, why was not Satan instantly destroyed? Well, here's the answer in Great Controversy 498. Satan could use what God could not, flattery and deceit. Therefore, it must be demonstrated before the inhabitants of heaven as well as of all the worlds that God's government was just and his law perfect, even when it was decided that he could no longer remain in heaven, infinite wisdom did not destroy Satan. The inhabitants of heaven and of the other worlds could not then have seen the justice and the mercy of God in the destruction of Satan. Had he been immediately blotted from existence, they would have served God from fear rather than from love. For the good of the entire universe, through ceaseless ages, Satan must more fully develop his principles. And so, the warfare that started in heaven continues on this earth. In the story of redemption, page 27, we read, Satan became fully convinced that there was no possibility of his being reinstated in the favor of God. And then what did he do? He manifested his malice with increased hatred and fiery behemoth. And why did Satan act in this way? Greek Controversy 497. Satan thought that if he could carry the angels of heaven with him in rebellion, he could carry also the other worlds. So we see that Satan began a most cunning plan, which was to capture the newest created beings, the noble Adam and the lovely Eve. In the story of Redemption 31, God would not permit Satan to follow the holy pair with continual temptations. 
he would have access to them only at the tree of knowledge and of good and evil. But when the opportune moment arrived, Satan offered Adam and Eve something of great apparent advantage, just as he had done in heaven to the angels. For he told Adam and Eve, and I'm reading Genesis 3, 5, ye shall be as gods. In the story of redemption, page 34, the tempter assured Eve that as soon as she ate of the fruit, she would receive a new and a superior knowledge that would make her equal with God. And so now we can begin to see that the sin of Adam and Eve was not just in eating an apple or a pear or whatever it was. We read that Satan plucked the fruit and gave it to Eve, and she took the fruit and plucked it for herself and ate. Likewise, Adam transgressed God's command, and he too ate of the fruit. Thus the holy pair fell from their exalted state, and the whole family of man followed in sin and must die. Their failure gave Satan another chance to accuse God. In Selected Messages 1252, after the fall of man, Satan declared that human beings were proved to be incapable of keeping the law of God, and he sought to carry the universe with him in this belief. But we must never forget this fact. I'm reading Great Controversy 505. Had not God especially interposed, Satan and man would have entered into an alliance against heaven, and instead of cherishing enmity against Satan, the whole human family would have united in opposition to God. That's why we find in Romans 8, 7 these words, for the carnal mind is enmity against God. But praise the Lord. Jesus Christ intervened to save mankind. But we should remember, as I read in Patriarchs and Prophets 363, when man fell by transgression, the law was not changed, for a remedial system was established to bring him back to obedience. Christ would die in the place of the sinner and change man's carnal mind. But God would not, never has, and never will change his eternal law. In early writings 149, Christ then made known to the angelic host that a way of escape had been made for lost man. He told them that he had been pleading with his father 
and had offered to give his life a ransom to take the consequences of death upon himself that through him man might find pardon that through the merits of his blood and obedience to the law of God they could have the favor of God and be brought into the beautiful garden and eat of the fruit of the tree of life. Isn't that wonderful how the Lord Jesus Christ has made it possible for all of us someday to dwell in that beautiful garden? But so many of us fail to realize the real consequences of this contest. In early writings, 157, if the plan of man's redemption should fail, Satan would retain the kingdom which he then claimed. And if he should succeed, he flattered himself that he would reign in opposition to the God of heaven. So, and this is very important, a demonstration began on this earth in which Satan was offered opportunity to win the universe. And the outcome was to be settled by a demonstration. In Selected Messages 1, 3, 4, 7, in this world Satan had an opportunity to exhibit the result of the working out of his principles of freedom from all law. It was Cain who became Satan's first example in this demonstration, and of this we read in Great Controversy 543, in sparing the life of Cain the murderer, God gave the world an example of what would be the result of permitting the sinner to live to continue a course of unbridled iniquity. Through the influence of Cain's teaching and example, multitudes of his descendants were led into sin until the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So, the antediluvian world became a massive demonstration of Satan's freedom from all law. As the all-wise God gave time for both good and evil to fully develop. In Great Controversy 4.8, he permits the wicked to reveal their true character, that none who desire to do his will may be deceived concerning them. God permits the wicked to prosper and to reveal their enmity against him that when they shall have filled up the measure of their iniquity, all may see his justice and mercy in their utter destruction. So, 
In the centuries that followed the flood, Satan has demonstrated how his government works, and the results have always been the same, wickedness and misery. But we must not overlook that God, too, has his faithful witnesses who are demonstrating to the universe, such as Noah, Job, and good old-fashioned Abraham. Of these, we read their example, and I'm quoting from Great Controversy 48, their example may convince others of the reality of faith and godliness, and also that their consistent course may condemn the ungodly and unbelieving. This brings us to a very, very important point found in Testimonies to Ministers, page 18. The Lord Jesus is making experiments on human hearts through the exhibition of his mercy and abundant grace. He is affecting transformations so amazing that Satan, with all his triumphant boasting, with all his confederacy of evil united against God in the laws of his government, stands viewing them as a fortress impregnable to his sophistries and delusions. Praise God. Think what God can do for us if we will only surrender to him. Think of it. We can be a fortress that, in God's view, is impregnable. Thus, we find that the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the true and the faithful remnant, are each demonstrating to the world, and not only to the world, but to the universe, the love and the beauty and the perfection of God's law. But the crowning demonstration that is to be found is that which was revealed in the great contrast between love and hatred, which was demonstrated between the king of Jerusalem and the king of Babylon. It was here on this earth that Christ and Satan met face to face. That happened when Christ condescended to take humanity upon himself. And Satan seized the opportunity to demonstrate hate, warfare, and murder. While on the other hand, Christ's life demonstrated love and righteousness. Satan's treatment of Christ demonstrated the results of selfishness by taking the very life of his creator. In Desire of Ages 761, Satan saw that his disguise was torn away. His administration was laid open before the unfallen angels and before the heavenly universe. 
He had revealed himself as a murderer by shedding the blood of the Son of God. He had uprooted himself from the sympathies of the heavenly beings and the last link of sympathy between Satan and the heavenly world was broken. When Christ died, Satan realized his defeat. In Desire of Ages 57, Satan made it evident that the real purpose of his rebellion was to dethrone God and to destroy him through whom the love of God was shown. However, it was not yet time for God to destroy Satan and his angels after the crucifixion of his son. This is very amazing, for in Desire of Ages 761 we read, the angels did not even understand all that was involved in the great controversy. The principles at stake were to be more fully revealed. And then God also must consider the fate of men. In Desire of Ages 762 are these words, man was deceived. His mind was darkened by Satan's sophistry. The height and the depth of the love of God he did not know. For him there was hope in a knowledge of God's love. By beholding his character, he might be drawn back to God. And then, on page 761, for the sake of man, notice, for the sake of man, Satan's existence must be continued. Man, as well as angels, must see the contrast between the Prince of Light and the Prince of Darkness. He must choose whom he will serve. And this is why Satan continues the battle as the end approaches. For we read in Revelation 12:17, the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So men and the universe are still watching this demonstration, and the final decision will be based on the weight of evidence. Volume 5, page 573. All heaven is interested in the work going on in this world. And in page 526, the whole universe is looking with inexpressible interest to see the closing work of the great controversy between Christ and Satan. As from the beginning, Satan is the accuser, God is the accused, the world is the theater, and the actors are the earth's inhabitants. The final act, the most decisive and vindictive, is soon to come 
in this last performance. For you and I are to take part on this stage. And Satan is determined to wipe us out as a people of Jerusalem. In Testimonies to Ministers 37, it is the purpose of Satan to cause them to be blotted from the earth in order that his supremacy of the world may not be disputed. But before the curtain falls on the last act, you and I will have performed our part, and no one will be excused. We must each choose to be a Babylonian or an Israelite. You know, as things are developing all around us, you can sort of feel the tension today. You can sort of grasp the excitement as you see what is happening within the church and without the church. But what is so alarming is the fact that the remnant church is so asleep today and filled with apathy and complacency when we are surrounded with signs of a coming worldwide catastrophe. I was recently astounded to discover this month of September 1995 what knowledgeable men are openly stating that is soon to come upon us. I have access to the McIlvaney Intelligence Advisor and other like information which is prepared for the well-to-do with in-depth monetary, economic, and geopolitical analysis, which leaves no doubt that we are entering the last act in this spiritual drama. Permit me to shatter the prevailing complacency with the following statements that I have gleaned from the September editions. Remember, these are not my words, but they are the insight of some of today's most intelligent observers. And let these word descriptions burn into your mind. I quote, We are headed for a crash the like America has never experienced. Again, millions of investors will be shocked to discover that prices go down as well as up. The dollar will plunge. Again, Cities will decay. Office space is becoming worthless. A liability as the microchip and sophisticated electronic communications make office buildings obsolete. Again, tax revenues are drying up. Another, look for public services to collapse under its own weight. You can see from these quotations what the rich are about to do. Here is another. I'm quoting. 
the rich Americans are leaving the United States forever, taking their money and powerful business with them. 1,000 affluent Americans are quietly slipping out each month. And then these words, hard times are ahead for middle big business. And then these words, the worst is yet to come. But let's look at some of the other points that they're bringing out. Viruses are mutating faster than ever before. It is now possible for new infections, more dangerous than AIDS, to kill millions within a seven-day period. Scientists state that it is only a matter of time that this is inevitable. And then listen to this one. Global terrorism, terrorism is on the rise. 30,000 nuclear weapons in the Soviet Union are unaccountable for. Russia has never dismantled its military machine in spite of its apparent chaos. Instead, Russia is now adding to its arsenal of ICBMs, adding jet fighters and bombers, submarines and tanks, and chemical biological warfare weapons. With 40,000 nuclear warheads targeted at America, while the United States is destroying her weapons as she has agreed, Russian communism is growing. One more look at our own country, please. The United States debt is compounding. The debt pyramid now stands at 17 trillion, which includes personal and business debts. America will be forced to compete with Mexican, Chinese, and Russian labor. And this is something to think about for Russians work for a hundred dollars a month and are thankful for any job. And likewise, so the Chinese. Who do you think is going to pay the Americans up to $200 a day? And then were these words, hard times are ahead. You know, I could go on and on with such bewildering statistics. There is no possible justification for the present apathy and complacency that we find today in our church. For the devil is forcing the subjects of this world very soon into such chaotic conditions that all will be faced to make a decision to keep Sunday holy as a sign of their allegiance to Satan to attempt to avert a worldwide disaster. Now don't think for a moment 
that this will not affect the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Our institutions will collapse financially. Leadership will insist that there is no other way that we can continue but to join with the world to save itself. Thus the historic true believer within the church today will be faced from within and without with terrifying opposition. Yet, praise God, there will be a faithful remnant. Never forget, God has never depended on numbers. Truth is mightier than all of evil. There is a work to be done and that must be done quickly by his faithful few. Seriously, I have some very thought-provoking questions to give. What about Jerusalem, wherein we dwell? Have the walls been properly fortified to withstand Satan's final massive attack? Remember, during the Dark Ages, the walls and the city itself were breached in many places by papal Babylon. Our courageous pioneers labored diligently to repair the breach, as did Israel of old to restore their ruined temple at Jerusalem. In the book Prophets and Kings, our work is compared to the physical rebuilding of old Jerusalem under the Zerubbabel, God's prophet. I'm reading Prophets and Kings, page 677. The work of restoration and reform carried on by the returned exiles under the leadership of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah presents a picture of the work of spiritual restoration that is to be wrought in the closing days of this earth's history. They that shall build the old waste places, thou shalt raise up the foundation of many generations, and thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. In the time of the end, notice again that expression, in the time of the end, every divine institution is to be restored. The breach made in the law at the time the Sabbath was changed by man is to be repaired. God's remnant people standing before the world as reformers are to show that the law of God is the foundation of all enduring reform and that the Sabbath of the fourth commandment is to stand as a memorial of creation a constant reminder of the power of God. In clear, distinct lines, they are to present the necessity of obedience to all the precepts of the Decalogue. 
constrained by the love of Christ, they are to cooperate with him in building up the waste places. They are to be the repairers of the breach, restorers of paths to dwell in. Let me tell you, as I look at the conditions around us, there is so much to be done. Christ's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary must be proclaimed in every portion of the globe. The earthly priestcraft instituted by Babylon must be replaced by Christ, our high priest. We are not to listen to the voices of the ecumenical movement, for they have but one purpose, and that is to delay the rebuilding of God's city. These are the voices of Babylon calling us to mingle with them rather than separate as God has warned us to do. This is no time to celebrate as some of our church leaders are encouraging us to do. For celebration worship has been instigated by none other than Papal Rome with the devilish purpose of causing us to forget the coming invasion that he has planned to destroy us. Such is the bewildering tactics of Satan to keep us from the work of God which he would have us do in these closing hours. We must ever heed the precious light given to us in the spirit of prophecy. For no other church has ever received such a full knowledge of God's will. If knowledge embraces every revealed truth, this comes with additional light for God's remnant. Let me give you an example. In Great Controversy 609, different periods in the history of the church have each been marked by the development of some special truth adapted to the necessities of God's people at that time. When you look back, it is true of Noah's message to the antediluvians. A flood was coming. Then when you look at Lot's message to Sodom and Gomorrah, there was to come upon the city fire and brimstone. Looking at Jonah's message to Nineveh, repent or you will be lost. And then Elijah's message to ancient Israel. We are to worship the God who is the creator and not the things that were created. The message of Christ and his apostles to the Jewish nation was that the Messiah had arrived. And the reformers' message during the Dark Ages was back to the Bible, the Bible and the Bible only. And as we look at our present message, we find it to be of utmost importance, for it is to prepare the people for the final climax of the history of this world. The three angels' messages must be given fearlessly in these closing hours. In Prophets and Kings, page 716, in these final hours of probation for the sons of men, 
when the fate of every soul is so soon to be decided forever. The Lord of heaven and earth expects his church to arouse to action as never before. Those who have been made free in Christ through a knowledge of precious truth are regarded by the Lord Jesus as his chosen ones, favored above all other people on the face of the earth. And he is counting on them to show forth the praises of him who hath called them out of darkness into marvelous light. The blessings which are so liberally bestowed are to be communicated to others. The good news of salvation is to go to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Will you complete the work for Jesus? of giving the three angels' message to the entire world, the third angel's message, the last message of warning must be given. Who will otherwise find the truth if we do not warn these dear people, for they will be lost in their Sunday keeping? The people of Babylon must hear it. We must warn them of the near approach of the judgment of the living and of the return of Jesus Christ to complete the work. May God be able to say of each of us, as I read early writings 239, Thou art an holy people unto God, and the Lord thy God hath chosen thee <clears throat> to be a special people unto himself, above all the people that are upon the face of the earth. May it be said of us, Jesus looked upon them with pleasure, for his image was reflected in them. Let us pray. Loving Father, as we have caught a vision of the great battle between Christ and Satan, oh, we pray thee, that we may be on the victorious side of Jesus. Help us to put all the armor on. Help us to be courageous. Help us to look in faith to the mighty arm of God that will give us victory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now in our next study, number three, we will discover the modern Tower of Babel in which we will be amazed to learn how Satan is laying a net of deception in which he hopes to capture the very saints of God within Jerusalem. You must hear this. And now, I want to bring to you in song a message of hope and courage by an old friend of mine, Sonny Lou, I want you uh, to be able to face the future unafraid, knowing that God will protect you in the coming crisis. Listen with me now to what historic Advent, Advent music used to be like as Sonny Lou sings his song, The Night Watch. Thank you. 
Keeping the night warm. 